Welcome to Evidence-Based, a new Harbinger psychology podcast. We're your hosts, Cassie and Kendall. On today's episode, we're talking about superhero therapy. We're joined by Dr. Janina Scarlett. Dr. Scarlett is the author of Superwomen. She's a licensed clinical psychologist, an award-winning author, and a full-time geek. A Ukrainian-born refugee, she survived Chernobyl radiation and persecution. Scarlett immigrated to the United States at the age of 12 with her family and later, inspired by X-Men, developed superhero therapy to help patients with anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder. She has been awarded the United Nations Association's Eleanor Roosevelt Human Rights Award for her book, Superhero Therapy. Her other books include Harry Potter Therapy, Therapy Quest, and Dark Agents Book One. Hi, Janina. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're excited to chat with you. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yes, Janina, it's nice to have you here with us. And we would like to start out with a establishing question to ask, what is superhero therapy? That's what you're famous for in your field. So if you could explain to us what that means. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, superhero therapy refers to incorporating elements of popular culture from either superhero films or comic books or fantasy, science fiction, or even video games into evidence-based therapy to help the client become their own version of a superhero in real life. So it's meant to be self-empowering and it's meant to facilitate what's called post-traumatic growth. So I want to talk a little bit about, I know you've talked about this a lot, but how you came up with superhero therapy and how it is incorporated in acceptance and commitment therapy. Thank you. Yeah. So um, I myself am a trauma survivor and also, you know, uh, was born a geek, a very proud one. Um, I was born and raised in Ukraine. And um, this is the first year that I don't feel like I need to explain where that country is. And as a small child, I, my family and I, like everyone in Ukraine, were exposed to massive amounts of radiation from the Chernobyl nuclear power disaster. And, you know, I still joke that I'm waiting for my spidey senses, you know, but in reality, I was in and out of hospitals as a kid and my health will forever be affected. And so when my family and I moved to the United States, Suddenly, I went from everybody understanding what it's like to have chronic illness to nobody understanding what it's like to have chronic illness and being bullied for it. And so I felt like I was alone. I felt like I was an outcast. And I also didn't know that going through chronic illness and the trauma of immigration couldn't cause PTSD. I didn't even know what PTSD was because nobody in my middle school talked about mental health. So I was in seventh grade when I moved to the U.S., no one talked about mental health. And so it wasn't until I was 16 and saw the first X-Men movie that I realized that a lot of people feel lonely. And so the first X-Men movie helped me to realize that most people go through some kind of an origin story, some kind of trauma, but we're not defined by it. It's a jumping off point. And I realized that most people don't talk about their loneliness and it's the biggest secret in the universe. And this movie helped me to see that we can use stories, fictional stories, to understand our own experiences. So it was largely because of this movie that I signed up for psychology class first in high school. And now this is what I do. And so in my work, I 
help clients to understand what happened to them through the lens of some kind of a story. And I help them to change their own narrative from victim to survivor to help them to learn about their own core values, for example, which is a concept within acceptance and commitment therapy, which means what's really important to us, right? What's our sense of purpose? To help them to accept what happened to them, not in terms of giving up, but in terms of validating that the traumatic event did in fact occur, to help them to understand that no matter who they are, their identity, their superhero identity stays the same. And that's the the self as context um, premise and acceptance commitment therapy. And the idea is over time for the client to become their own version of a superhero by taking Uh, empowered steps, which in ACT are called committed action steps. And so it's essentially a way of using this evidence-based therapy in kind of a playful manner to make therapy attainable and fun for clients. I think it's really interesting, Janina, that X-Men was the movie as a teenager for you to see yourself kind of in that loneliness. And going back to talking about trauma, though, I also think it's interesting that a lot of people find comfort in superheroes and their stories. But I think that a lot of people are missing the element that trauma is part of their origin story, um, putting a name to it. That is that, that, that traumatic event has led them to that. And so why is it that the superhero therapy is so effective for treating people with anxiety or depression or PTSD? Many people, I think, have been historically taught these really dangerous narratives that mental health is a weakness, that we need to just think our way out of it or think positive, right? That's called toxic positivity. And it doesn't work that way. Feelings are meant to be felt. That's why they're called feelings, right? And I think that for a lot of folks who are already struggling with trauma, with anxiety, with depression, completely understandable and normal reactions to life events. There's now this added element of guilt, shame, and as I mentioned earlier, loneliness, the the belief that we're alone in our experience. And so I think that the power of superhero therapy is the understanding that A, we're not alone, B, that there's absolutely no shame in going through what we're going through, and C, that our origin story is just that. It's the jumping off point. But the rest of our journey is up to us. We get to make choices in how we respond to trauma. And I kind of wonder, um, just a follow-up question to that. I feel like superheroes and um, these these stories, especially with Marvel and DC, there's so many more, even more accessible than there were before. Like it was comic books. And now it's like every month there's a new Marvel movie. Are you noticing more people are you know, identifying with those characters and sort of finding themselves in them, if that makes sense. I am. I'm noticing that more and more people, even people who didn't necessarily grow up on superheroes or comic books, are relating to different kinds of characters, even if they're not hugely into superheroes. I think that superheroes have become kind of the modern myth, right? The modern mythology that people just know many people just know who Batman is and many people know who Avengers are and so I think that it's become this metaphor that people can use to explain their own experiences so for example when I was working with active duty service members who just returned from the war they would say things like you know I felt like I was in a scene from the walking dead when I was walking through 
you know, the aftermath of what happened in combat. And it made sense, right? They used a metaphor. And even if I didn't watch The Walking Dead, I knew exactly what they were referring to. And so I think the, the, the pop culture, the way it is now, because it's written in such a real way, is giving people a language and a mirror to understand and to speak out about their experiences. That makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned working with active duty members. You work with a lot of young people. um, And your latest book uh, with New Harbinger is for women. Uh, Could you give an example or two about how you would use superhero therapy in your practice? Absolutely. So in the first session, in addition to learning about the client's presenting problem, right, some of the issues that they're struggling with and what brings them in, I reserved the last about 10 or so minutes to learning about their interests and passions. So um, you might not be able to see it, but, you know, my office is pretty geeky. I have, you know, Funkos of like DC and Marvel and the Adams family. And so I let people know, hey, I'm a geek. I love DC. I love Marvel. I love Harry Potter. You know, I love Star Wars. And so I let, I ask people, what are some of the things you're passionate about? Movies, TV shows, comic books, video games. So I try to make it a safe space for people to talk about what they're passionate about. And I take note of that. And over the next few sessions, we work on uh, the client's origin story, helping the client to understand their own narrative. For example, if somebody comes in with a history of sexual assault, we'll together uh, put together a narrative that this person has right now. For example, they might say, I am weak, I am broken, it's my fault that this happened. So that's kind of the victim narrative that they might be coming in with, believing that it was somehow their fault. And then we'll look at some of their favorite heroes. For example, a lot of survivors that I work with really look up to Jessica Jones, who's become this kind of Me Too icon. And for people who are not familiar, Jessica Jones is a Marvel superhero who had experienced sexual assault. Um, and she's physically very, very strong, but the person who assaulted her used his power of manipulation and mental influence. And so I would ask my clients if the particular hero they look up to, if they deserved what happened to them, if they were weak, if they were quote unquote broken. And of course the clients would say, no, absolutely not. You know, this hero that I look up to like Jessica is the most powerful person that they can think of. And we'll do kind of a version of what's called an empty chair exercise where their hero will kind of get a chance to talk to them. We'll imagine, what if Jessica was here? She joined our session, right? Even though she's a fictional character. If she sat down next to you and she knows your origin story, what might she tell you about your origin story? What might she say? And I ask clients to actually write it down because I think when we write, we can we access some of the deeper messages than we do when we're speaking verbally. And so over time, the clients will then be invited to think about their own sense of purpose. I might say, okay, let's imagine that you get to be a superhero now. Sky is the limit. You can even have superpowers, right? How do you want to impact the world? And people might say things like, I would want to save people who are struggling with either depression or maybe people who are struggling with bullying, for example. And then we'll outline actual steps that that person can take to engage with supporting their community in real life. And so the idea is to 
interweave fiction with the person's life to help them over time to change their narrative, to help them understand that they're A, a survivor, and B, already a hero, and that there are additional steps they can take to continuing to do so. And then therapy ends with the client rewriting their narrative now from this heroic survivor perspective. I love that. And when we think of therapy, I think often it can feel to people who aren't as familiar with it, it can feel really rigid. And this is such a creative, fresh approach to um, rewriting your narrative and having those conversations with people you admire and and finding your, your way to work through trauma that way. Um, I also really like talking about your passions with your therapist because you don't, usually you're so focused on the problem. And I feel like speaking with your therapist about your passions unlocks another part of yourself that is, you know, you wouldn't necessarily get to know, um, in session. So I think that's really cool. Um, and Going back, so now that we've talked about how you use it in practice and a few examples, in your books, um, you talk about emotional safety when it comes to um, superhero therapy. Can you explain what emotional safety is and why it's so important to that process? Absolutely. So emotional safety is the ability to feel free to express ourselves either to ourselves or to other people knowing that we won't be bullied or attacked or invalidated and emotional safety is something that a lot of people actually don't feel especially if they're in invalidating environments if they grew up in abusive family if they had experienced abusive relationships and so even if people might not be physically harmed on a regular basis they might be emotionally harmed and the idea of establishing emotional safety starts with ourselves so it's the permission for ourselves to feel whatever emotions are coming up um, to give ourselves the kind of loving supportive validation we would give to let's say a dear friend uh, or a beloved family member or even a pet and practicing extending this kind of compassion and kindness to ourselves so that we have the uh the courage and the willingness and essentially the safety to acknowledge to ourselves, I'm feeling hurt, I'm feeling vulnerable, I'm feeling scared. And hopefully over time, that could get built into our relationships with supportive loved ones. And just to follow up on that, Janina, when you're talking about working through trauma, do you find that emotional safety is really important because of how hard someone can be on their on themselves for their experience? Or is that is that part of it? A hundred percent, right? There are several elements here. First of all, um, as you said, people are very hard on themselves, right? They're already going through trauma, a very understandable reaction given what happened to them. And then there's the self-criticism that comes up, which is often um, sort of a a retelling of somebody else's narrative, right? Like a, a reflection of how somebody else might've treated them. But then there's also this element that we often don't talk about, which is called an emotional flashback. And so a lot of people might know what a cognitive flashback is, which is when we're thinking about a particular trauma, right? Let's say if somebody got hit by a car, they might be remembering what it looked like to see that car coming at them. So that's more of a cognitive flashback. Emotional flashback is when we feel it in the body. We might not even be thinking about it, right? So an example of an emotional flashback might happen when, let's say, somebody is at a football game and everybody's cheering and that person might go into freeze mode, right? So they might, their body might 
tense up and their heart might pound and they might be unable to speak and they might not even know why they're feeling this way. And sometimes it will turn out that maybe their their previous partner or their family member used to maybe suddenly jump up or shout, you know, before hitting that person. Um, and so another element of emotional safety is noticing when we feel unsafe in the body, when that emotional flashback is happening. And self-soothing, whether it's by giving ourselves a gentle self-hug, such as placing hands on our heart, um, slowing down our breath, maybe um, speaking to ourselves in a kind manner so that we can find that soothing in that moment when we feel unsafe. I have kind of a follow-up about that too. I'm wondering your thoughts on sort of collective trauma and the piling on of trauma and having those emotional flashbacks for something that maybe didn't happen to you, but has happened. I mean, I'm talking mass shootings, I'm talking COVID, I'm talking all of it. So I wonder, I wonder your thoughts on the collective trauma. And maybe um, you sort of mentioned the self-soothing technique, like what can we do when we're experiencing collective trauma that maybe didn't start with us? First of all, thank you so much for asking that question. What a necessary question. Um, What we know from neuroscience and genetic studies is that trauma is passed down from generation to generation, but so is healing, right? When somebody had been through severe trauma, like for example, I'm the grandchild of four Holocaust survivors. All four of my grandparents were in the Holocaust. All of their families didn't make it with the exception of two family members on my grandpa's side. And so I have inherited all of those genes. And what we know is that people are predisposed to trauma reactions through their DNA when they're offspring of trauma survivors. When things happen, such as the ones you mentioned, whether we're talking about mass shootings, whether we're talking about COVID, or whether we're talking about some of the, some of the recent events that have occurred, um, what, what a lot of us might experience is this flood of either a freeze response or an anger response or frustration. And we might even feel it in certain areas of the body. And that's trauma. Many individuals, especially um, individuals that were um, assigned uh, sex of a female at birth, might experience pain or even discomfort uh, in their lower stomach region uh, when these situations occur. And this is us holding on and carrying trauma from generations to generations. And so I think when that happens, a part of that self-soothing that we're talking about is recognizing and naming it. This is my trauma reaction. Where do I feel it in my body? Can I breathe into this body? And also noticing that our anger, our reaction is pushing us to find our voice, to speak up for what we believe in in whichever way that looks like for us. And so I think emotional safety is very much about validation in this, you know, in this case, and then also allowing ourselves the time that we need to grieve, to heal, and then to take action. Definitely. I think that's so important to take that minute for yourself instead of your immediate reaction, because I think that can, like, you can glaze right over that and just move into anger and you haven't even fully processed, you know, the moment or the experience. 
Um, I also wanted to ask you about, oh, were you going to say something? Sorry, I was just going to say, I have a motto when things like that happen and I share it with my clients and my motto when things like this occur are today we grieve, tomorrow we fight. And the idea behind it is that we really do need a day or maybe a few days or maybe a week to grieve, to make sense of it before we're ready to figure out what actions we want to take. I love that. And I need it on a shirt like immediately. (laughs) Um, So in your book, you also talk about burnout, which I think is even more relevant and widespread than when your book came out potentially. Um, So what is burnout? How can we recognize the signs of burnout and and how can we start to heal from burnout? It feels like a very big, like overwhelming thing to try to like tackle or overcome. 100%. So if anyone has ever owned a cell phone, you might be used to looking at your phone's battery amount, right? And so when we get that red notification, right? And the pop-up message, your phone is at 5%, right? We know we need to plug it in. We know we need to recharge that battery. Well, burnout refers to either physical or emotional or cognitive or all of the above exhaustion, depletion of our resources. And this can happen with physical labor, but it can also happen with a lot of the emotional trauma that we're carrying. And just like on your phone, if you're watching lots of videos and running in lots of apps, your battery will deplete sooner. So as we're going through this collective trauma experience, as we're, you know, overwhelmed by the constant news and and, and new experiences, it makes sense that our internal battery will deplete sooner. So what it means is that we need to be regularly checking in. I actually um, encourage my clients every hour to ask themselves from zero to 100, what's my internal battery level? And when we're below 40, we need to, quote unquote, plug ourselves in. Don't wait till you're at 5%, right? So it might mean taking time away from all electronics, right? Especially like maybe news. It might mean eating. It might mean going for a walk or taking a nap or watching our favorite TV show. Um, And I think it's something that we need to be especially aware of now. A couple of years ago, uh, the World Health Organization officially recognized burnout as a medical concern. So this is something that world leaders are taking very seriously. And it has gotten so serious that people in Japan even have a term for burnout. uh, And that term is Kuroshi, which actually means death by burnout. This term was invented because people were dying from premature heart attacks and strokes in their early 40s um, from overwork. And so a lot of companies in Japan and now in other countries have set a limit as to how many hours people are allowed to work to prevent this from happening. But I think it's something we need to take seriously no matter where we live and really check in with our resources and remember that just like we plug in our electronics, we need to plug ourselves in and recharge. Yeah, that's so important. And it's so hard, like, you know, working from home, it's hard to disconnect. It's hard to know when to take a vacation because your house has become your office. And so I think that term is, uh, the Japanese term is really powerful because it's, I can see how easily it can lead to that. Your body is always activated. You're always feeling it in your body. And um, so I think that's really important. 
So Janina, in your book, you talk about superheroing with connection and safety. Can you explain why those two uh, come together and why it's so important? Absolutely. I think in order for us to feel like we are a superhero in real life, we need a sense of balance. And I think that sense of balance has to do with those two elements, because if we don't have emotional safety, then we might be less willing to take certain steps and more likely to burn out and less likely to continue taking important steps. And once we have that feeling of emotional safety, adding the important of uh, the important element of connection, connection with ourselves, connection with our core values, connection with our loved ones, this gives us not only a sense of purpose, it also gives us the sense of vitality um, in terms of physical and emotional rebuilding. I've been really interested in the relationship between loneliness and belonging. So I've been doing a lot of research on this. I'm actually writing a book on loneliness and belonging right now. And what I'm finding is that loneliness completely destroys our immune system, our, uh, our heart system. It actually puts us at a high risk for heart disease and high risk of uh, developing certain illnesses and um, different kinds of mental health illnesses as, as well. But a sense of belonging, a sense of connection appears to build up our immune system so much so that when people have a stronger sense of connection, they're less likely to get things like the common cold, for example, uh, less likely to get sick, uh, are likely to recover from illnesses like cancer faster. Um, and connection with our sense of purpose uh, is likely to give us that reason to get out of bed in the morning, even when we're struggling. And so I think that this balance of emotional safety, where we feel safe in the world, safe enough to protect ourselves or support ourselves, and connection with ourselves and, and others and our sense of purpose, I think really gives us a life that's really meaningful and a life that even when it's hard, we're likely to show up for. And Janina, a lot of your work has to do with mindfulness. Uh, can you talk about how mindfulness can help create that emotional and even physical safety? Yeah, thank you. Great question. Mindfulness really has to do with noticing. It's a special way of paying attention. And a lot of times it's noticing when we're struggling, such as noticing when we're burning out, for example, from our earlier conversation, or noticing when we're starting to feel sad or scared or triggered before it gets to that level of overwhelm, freeze response or shutdown. If we can notice, okay, wait a minute, I'm feeling hungry or angry or lonely or overwhelmed, it can remind us that we can take care of ourselves. So mindfulness is a necessary component for building emotional safety and resilience. But mindfulness doesn't only mean noticing what's going wrong. It also means what's going right. So mindfulness is an opportunity to practice gratitude right? To notice the kind of people or pets that are around us that are offering emotional or physical support. And it allows us, I think, more, uh, more resilience in that sense. If we know the kind of loving relationships that we have around us, then I think it's easier for us to show up as well. Earning your continuing education hours doesn't have to be a painful experience. 
The right course can open your mind to new possibilities, increase your confidence, and hand you powerful tools to transform your clients' lives. Praxis Continuing Education and Training teams up with some of the brightest minds in mental health to provide cutting-edge, evidence-based training for practitioners. You can learn firsthand from experts like Stephen C. Hayes, Kelly Wilson, Robin Walzer, Kirk Strassel, and many others. Find your next training at praxiscet.com. That's praxiscet.com. How can we recognize our own emotional triggers and vulnerabilities? Yeah, great question. I think I think mindfulness is a really big component of that in terms of noticing what's going on in our body, right? Maybe having kind of a curious, non-judgmental approach. For example, if somebody asks us a question like, hey, how would you feel about giving this talk tomorrow that you're completely unprepared for, right? We might notice this flush of maybe heat in our body, maybe like our heart will pound, maybe we'll notice like this tightness in our chest or stomach, and maybe a a very like defensive kind of a response. But having that curiosity of, oh, what's coming up for me? Maybe I'm nervous that I'm not going to do a good job. Maybe I'm anxious right now. It can allow us the ability to show up for ourselves so that we can self-soothe and then determine the best course of action. Um, I refer to this kind of curiosity as almost like potty training for our emotions, right? So uh, for many of us, this this doesn't apply to every single person, but I, I know for, for many folks that are able to, uh, to have access to feeling their bladder, right? We might be able to notice, okay, do I have to use the restroom right now? Or can I wait maybe an hour or two, right? Like if we're driving, it's very useful to know mm-hmm. which exit <laughs> we need to take, right? Especially if we're going on road trips. We can do the same thing with hunger, right? Although some of us are disconnected from that feeling. We can notice, do I need to eat right now? Am I like ravenous? Or is it kind of like, I could eat? Or is it more like, no, I, I can go hours and I'm okay. But we can do the same thing with anxiety. We can do the same thing with a number of other emotions. And if, as we start creating this kind of curiosity, we can notice those triggers, right? In terms of, oof, here's that fear response or, oh, shame moment, right? Or total vulnerability, you know, like maybe somebody asked me a question that I wasn't ready to answer, right? And so as we're able to really notice our body and be curious about it, I think we can be more mindful of those triggers, show up for ourselves, and then maybe figure out how we need to support ourselves and and how we want to proceed. I think it's so interesting in my own sort of experience with anxiety. I feel like my body always knows first before I'm even aware of what I could be being triggered by. And I I always feel my anxiety in my body first. And it's so weird. Your body just knows. Um, So I find that to be really interesting. It's true, right? Because in a lot of ways, this is our survivor mechanism, right? Our body makes a reaction first, right? It's for that reason that if we touch a hot stove, we pull our hand away before our brain registers that we're being burned. Our body reacts first to keep us safe. This happens when a car is coming at us, right? But it also happens if we're triggered by somebody, if somebody says something and whoosh, we're just defensive in that Mm -hmm. moment, we might not even know why, But that's our body trying to play bouncer, right? Trying to say, hey, I got you, right? I'm going to stand (laughs) up for you. 
And the more curious we become over time, the more we can figure out, yes, I do need those kind of reactions or no, I got this, right? I can handle this. Gina, how do attachment styles impact the way we communicate our needs? Mm-hmm. So a lot of people think of attachment styles as important for child-parent interactions, but attachment styles are actually very important in our adult interactions as well. And so when individuals were raised in a loving and caring environment, they might be more likely to have what's called a secure attachment style, which means they feel fairly safe and comfortable communicating their needs and maybe receiving feedback. They might be less defensive, more open in general. But of course, if that individual was then in invalidating or abusive relationship, that might change. Individuals who have a more avoidant attachment style might feel um, very uncomfortable if they're starting to get close to somebody. They might feel trapped and scared and overwhelmed and they might be more likely to... um, maybe uh, either escape the situation when things are either getting too serious or when there's conflict. People with anxious attachment style are likely to uh, feel very, very nervous about is my partner, uh, if we're talking about relationships or my friend, perhaps, are they mad at me? Uh, They didn't respond to my text. You know, did I offend them somehow? Are they going to abandon me? And so a lot of times there's this Um, sort of fear about being abandoned, neglected, judged, uh, or abused in some kind of way. And I think understanding our own attachment styles, um, including in adulthood, can help us to realize what's going on in certain interactions. It might give us, again, the vocabulary, right, to explain to either a partner or friend, hey, I have an anxious attachment style. And so You know, like if you're mad at me, could you just like flat out tell me and not leave me guessing and things like that? Um, I think for people who might be less aware of that, they might think that they've done something wrong if they have that anxious attachment styles and the other individual might not know what's happening and might not provide the most reassuring, validating response leading to unnecessary conflicts. So I think the more we understand our attachment styles, the more we can advocate for our needs and hopefully get those needs met in, you know, any kind of a relationship, again, either romantic relationship or a friendship. I really like the idea of being transparent with people in your life about your attachment style to say like, hey, this is, you know, the way I operate and these things make me anxious or uncomfortable and, and kind of giving someone the tools to know that and how to um, interact with you is, is really helpful. Of course, going a step further, though, you need to know your attachment style in order yes. to communicate it. Um, and then in the same line of thought, what is dependency shaming and why is it toxic? I figured it would tie into this. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. I think that um, especially in the West, there's this idea that everybody should be independent And the thought is that independent means you should never need other people. And so uh, dependency shaming refers to people saying uh, you're quote unquote too needy or too clingy. And when somebody might be reaching out to their friends or their partner for emotional support, we're wired for connection and belonging. We experience not only emotional, but also physical pain when we feel disconnected and lonely. 
And so I think when somebody's going through a hard time and they're reaching out for support and the other person is not only not supportive, but then is also shaming them and saying you should be more independent, that's likely to make that individual who reached out feel ashamed of themselves. Uh, It's likely to make them shut down and in some critical cases might make them consider suicide because they're feeling so alone in their experience. We know that when people feel supported and validated, truly seen, right, heard and understood, very often that's enough to get them out of crisis, to get them to feel emotionally and also physically better. And I think that the idea that people, quote unquote, should be able to figure things out on their own is not only outdated, it's also dangerous. And I, you know, I... I'm all about promoting independence in terms of, you know, knowing that you can take steps on your own. But I I think as a mental health professional that it is vital that we as human beings know the importance of interconnectedness and social support. I think it's really interesting when you talk about how we view dependency. You know, you hear a lot about families in other countries and other uh, places that have their kids live with them to older ages. And here we view that as such a, uh, critical or, you know, th- through a critical lens or, or negativity, um, when it means something completely different, um, we've just kind of put a different, uh, spin on it as well. You know, you saw a lot of people moving home during COVID and that made them feel good to be around people. And still there was a narrative around people moving home to be with their families and parents. And I just think it's really interesting to see the dependency shaming kind of on a large scale. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm hoping more and more people can understand that there's absolutely nothing wrong with needing other people. We're meant for creating supportive environments. Uh, The U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, wrote a book called Together. And this book is all about the importance of interconnectedness and belonging and how toxic and dangerous loneliness is. And it was one of the one of the sources that inspired me to do my work on loneliness and belonging. And I'm hoping to really reverse this Western narrative that we're meant to be completely independent because we're not. That's not how we're wired. Well, and it doesn't make you stronger for not needing people. I think it's stronger to admit when you do need people. So I think that's that's just a really interesting uh concept that has become synonymous with the Western thing, like you're independent, you don't need anybody, but we all do. Exactly. And that narrative that you mentioned that, you know, like, quote, unquote, you don't need anybody or that it's weakness to ask for help. It's killing people, especially Mm -hmm. men at alarmingly high rates, because people think it's weakness to ask for help. It's not. It is the strongest thing, the most courageous thing that you can do. Absolutely. And I think, you know, going along with this conversation, you know, this can make people feel a lot of shame. So I think this is a natural segue into talking about self-compassion. And in your book, you mentioned using it as a shield, which is a really great metaphor. Can you talk about what that means and how we might do that? Yeah, absolutely. So self-compassion work uh, comes largely from Kristen Neff's work. She's kind of the pioneer of self-compassion in the West. Self-compassion has to do with giving ourselves the kind of kindness and love and support that we would give to maybe a child, a family member, or to a pet, especially when we're going through a hard time. 
So it's a direct response to our own suffering. And it has three elements. And the first element is mindfulness, right? Noticing that we're suffering. The second element is common humanity. So knowing that we're not alone in our experiences, that people all over the world are going through the same thing. And the third element is self-kindness. So giving ourselves physical or emotional comfort in the same way that we would give to a loved one. So examples of physical comfort might be wrapping ourselves in a blanket, cuddling a pillow, right? So basically self-hugs, maybe drinking a hot cup of tea because warming uh, ourselves, whether with the blanket or tea, actually allows our bodies to release this chemical called oxytocin, which is a soothing hormone. Or talking to ourselves in a kind way, such as, I know, honey, I know this is hard. I see you. I got you. We'll get through this together. Um, And some people who are hearing it for the first time might think it's, you know, kind of quote unquote cheesy, but it's not. Again, we're meant to receive this kind of support from one another. Giving it to other people makes us feel good. Receiving it from other people makes us feel good. And receiving it from ourselves is also really important. And so the reason why I call it a shield is because I think it creates this kind of a shield uh, against some of the blows that life can bring us sometimes and can also really increase that emotional safety element that we talked about. And now that we've talked about self-compassion and kind of using that as a defense or our shield, can you talk about self-purpose and how we define that? What a few categories that may be in line with that thought? Mm-hmm. So self-purpose or a sense of purpose is essentially what is our meaning? What, what kind of a gift do we want to give to this world right in our lifetime? And for many people, um, they might be living their life according to maybe their, their family's guidance, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but for that person, it might not be their sense of purpose. So somebody might go into some kind of a financially lucrative career, but it might not be something they're passionate about. Maybe they're passionate about art, right? And maybe they're not working as an artist for whatever reason. Maybe they're you know, family members or other people have told them that that's not something, a career that they're going to make money in. So they should go and become, you know, uh, somebody else, let's say a lawyer or doctor, somebody else. And for this person, they might be disconnected from their sense of purpose if they're not going after what's really important to them. So sense of purpose gives us vitality. It gives our life meaning and a way that we can get to it is by asking ourselves if there could be a movie made about me, let's say 10, 15 years from now, what would I want this movie to be about? How would I want to influence my community? What kind of gifts do I want to give to other people? Or how do I want to be remembered when I'm no longer here? And the idea is for individuals to start taking steps in this direction now, so that hopefully at the end of their life, they have few to no regrets about how they've lived their life. In, and hopefully they've lived their life in the most meaningful and passionate way. So earlier in the conversation, you, when you first talked about the concept of superhero therapy and you had the example with Jessica Jones. Um, so I love that because you're you're sort of taking the person's experience out of themselves and putting it onto someone they admire and respect how, what are ways that people can embody their favorite superhero? Yeah, I love that you asked that. Thank you. And so 
I've had clients, for example, start nonprofits to support people who've been through similar experiences. So people have become peer counselors to support other people in the same experience. Some people have started, for example, um, uh, either painting or producing YouTube content just to advocate for uh, experiences like it. And I think the the best thing for me as a therapist is being able to see somebody regain their voice, get in touch with their creativity, right? Get in touch with what really moves them and uh, and take a stand for that. And so one of the examples I can tell you about is um, I was working with a young lady who was a high school student who was severely bullied and struggled with depression and anxiety. And after her connection with her superhero that she really looked up to, she made a speech in one of her classes about mental health. And this was a way that she was giving back to her community. And it really helped a, a lot of her classmates to be able to speak out about their mental health struggles. She actually ended up starting a mental health peer support club in her school. And so these are just some examples of some of the steps that people might take if they're able to connect with their sense of purpose. I think the biggest obstacle that shows up for people for why they don't is because they think that they are not enough to make a difference or that the steps that they will take won't be enough to make a difference. But I think once people are able to see that they actually can influence other people, that they can make a meaningful difference in other people's lives, they're more willing to take those steps. And in the beginning, we talked about your work being inspired from your love of superheroes and Marvel and DC comics. On a more personal note, who are some of the superheroes that you look up to when you're feeling low? Thank you. Um, so Storm will always be a very important part of my life. She was my first introduction to superheroes from the X-Men movie. And she was the one that I was just blown away by. Uh, and then um, the Scarlet Witch, not because of my last name, I promise, um, but just because um, over the pandemic, watching um, WandaVision really moved me. And then rewatching it this year after the war in Ukraine started helped me to make sense of things like seeing her experience as an immigrant, as somebody that came from uh, a war uh you know, affected country as somebody who lost loved ones in a senseless war, as somebody who was going through so much trauma that she just shut down. I could relate to those experiences. And the people that I'm now supporting in Ukraine are, are definitely able to relate to those experiences. And so for me, Scarlet Witch has been just somebody I so look up to. And I've been using her as an example when I'm conducting trainings in Ukraine about how to use superhero therapy approach to help individuals with trauma right now. I think that's beautiful. And I loved WandaVision as well. And I don't think I've ever seen grief portrayed so real and so beautifully as I did with her character in general. So I really relate to that as well. Um, I want to ask, in your opinion or experience, why do you feel superhero therapy is so effective for women in particular? Thank you. I think for a lot of women, there's maybe an opportunity to be playful about experimenting with our voice. I think a lot of women, unfortunately, have had experiences where our voice had been 
suppressed, where we're told, for example, that we're not allowed to feel angry or frustrated and we have to, you know, play nice and take care of everybody around us. And I think that through the lens of this work, people might be more willing to maybe first playfully try out experimenting with their voice with, for example, anger, um, like some people do with um, Star Wars, right? Like, I call it like connecting with our dark side, right? Really allowing ourselves to feel angry so that we find our voice. And then role playing uh, as maybe a fictional character first to express our anger or frustration, and then taking that in uh, taking that step in real life and actually expressing ourselves and so I think it creates a safer environment to start practicing these skills before these skills are then brought to the outside world I think that seeing women portrayed in these roles is so empowering and um, having everyone look to them for help um, maybe saving a universe type help um, is, is really something uh, admirable. And I can see how that ties into everything that we've talked about today with trauma and anxiety and dealing with a lot of those really complex emotions. And specifically, like you said, for women who carry a lot of that and why that would really uh, resonate with them. And do you have any final thoughts, Janina? Um, honestly, just for anyone out there listening, I want to let you know that chances are you will never know the full impact that you make in this world. There are probably people who are alive today because of you, and they might never think to call you and thank you and tell you that. And so if you ever think that you're not doing enough, if you ever think that you can't change the world, I want you to know that that's not true. I want you to know that you already have and that every step you take, every moment of kindness, that's making a difference. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Janina. That was a perfect note to end on. I feel like yes, it was. I needed that. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, for sure. Thank you so much, Janina. Thank you so much, Janina. This was such a great conversation and a much more uplifting one about trauma than we have had yes. in a long time. So it was really great. Thank you. Thank you all. I really appreciate you all. I hope you have a wonderful day. You thank too. You, you too. Bye. Do you suffer from depression, anxiety, or trauma? Have you experienced sexism, marginalization, or even sexual assault? If so, each day can feel like a battle. But you do have the strength within you to rise above life's challenges. Using a unique blend of acceptance and commitment therapy and superhero therapy, this one-of-a-kind guide will help you get started. In Superwomen, you'll find tools to help you explore and process painful experiences, accept difficult thoughts and feelings, and use mindfulness and self-compassion to tap into your own unique superpowers. Alongside seven other heroic women, you'll learn how to rewrite your origin story and find compassionate tips and strategies to help you define your own heroic purpose. So if you're ready to rise from the ashes and join the leagues of superwomen everywhere, read this book. You may discover powers you never even knew you had. Visit our website at www.newharbinger.com and use coupon code PODCAST25 to receive 25% off your entire order. New Harbinger Publications is an independent, employee-owned publisher of books on psychology, health, spirituality, and personal growth. For nearly 50 years, our evidence-based self-help books and pioneering workbooks have helped readers make positive changes to improve mental health and well-being. Founded by psychologists Matthew McKay and Patrick Fanning, 
New Harbinger is proud to be an employee-owned company. Our books reflect our core values of integrity, sustainability, compassion, and trust. Written by leaders in the field and recommended by therapists worldwide, New Harbinger books are practical, accessible, and provide real tools for real change. Join the New Harbinger Clinicians Club, a free membership club exclusively for mental health professionals. Sign up today and you'll receive a special welcome gift, 35% off all professional books, free client resources, free eBooks throughout the year, access to private sales, a subscription to our quick tips for therapists, email program, and more visit newharbinger.com slash clinicians dash club for more information. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love if you rated reviewed and subscribed to the show, and we hope you might share it with anyone who might benefit from the content. This podcast is not a substitute for counseling with a licensed provider.